0: We see in polling that communities that live near nuclear power plants are actually really supportive of the technology, um, which is different than for fossil fuel power plants. Getting the process right is just super important because there's no time to make mistakes on this.
1: The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. Welcome back. Happy New Year 2022. Uh, I've had a little break and I've come back refreshed and ready to get this podcast going again. Let's see if we can spread some rationality. Now, as you probably know, nuclear energy is a key element in what I see as a just transition from fossil fuels to mitigate uh, climate change effects of carbon dioxide accumulation in the atmosphere. If you've looked at any of my previous podcasts, you'll know it's safe and effective and low carbon. Waste management is effective and the power is just dispatchable 24 seven. The jobs that it provides are high quality union jobs, well-paying, And the entire supply chain is domestic here in Canada, at least. How do we communicate these issues to a polarized public? There are problems. It's not catching on. Why not? To find this out, I'm going to interview an expert in this topic. As always, if you enjoy my content, please hit like on your podcast app. uh, Share it with your friends. Uh, I'd love to hear a few more hear from you on our Facebook discussion group, or come check out my website at therationalview.ca. Dr. Jessica Lovering is the co-founder and executive director of the Good Energy Collective, a new organization working on progressive nuclear policy. She completed her PhD in engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. She's a fellow with the Energy for Growth Hub and the Fastest Path to Zero initiative at University of Michigan. She was formerly the Director of the Energy Program at the Breakthrough Institute. Dr. Lovering, welcome to The Rational View.
0: Thank you for having me. Great to be here.
1: I appreciate you coming on. Uh, when I contacted you for this interview, you mentioned you've been out on parental leave. Congratulations. I hope things are going well in these difficult times.
0: <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, it's been wonderful. And uh, now we've got our baby in daycare, so um, everything's going well.
1: Excellent. Excellent. So you probably don't know much about me, but I, I I know about you. I've referenced your 2016 paper on the overnight costs to build nuclear uh, many, many times in social media. It was made <laughs> into a nice, powerful meme uh, by Ida Riachalme of Thoughtscapism. Uh, whenever someone quotes the, the Lazard LCOE of nuclear power, mm. I always uh, tweet up that that. Uh, figure from your paper. It's it's very useful data. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, yeah, I'm glad it's been really useful for a lot of people.
1: So before we get started, can you tell me a little bit about your career path? You, you've obviously done a lot of great stuff. How did you get into nuclear energy? How did you get where you're at?
0: Yeah, well, I'll try to be succinct, but it is a little bit of a winding path. So I started out in astrophysics. That was what I did for undergrad. And I started a PhD in astrophysics at University of Colorado. But uh, I'd always been really passionate about environmental issues and particularly got interested in climate change as I worked for a summer in Alaska and just seeing you know, effects on permafrost and glaciers retreating and wildfires. Um, just the immediacy and urgency of, of climate change seemed so evident to me. And um, so I decided to kind of leave astrophysics um, to work on you know problems down here on Earth. Uh, and so I went into environmental policy um, and ended up doing a master's degree in that and um, still wasn't, into nuclear until sort of the end of my master's program where, um, I was, uh, focused on energy policy, um, and really renewables policy. Cause that's, um, what, uh, was the focus of a lot of my coursework and, um, the university where I was university of Colorado, Boulder. Um, and how I got into nuclear was that, um, I was in a class on, on, um, Uh, policy and around climate change. And we did this exercise uh, where we were given a country and we were asked to sort of make a decarbonization plan for that country Um, you know, how they get to, I think, 80 percent of 1990 emissions. And um, I had Poland and just seeing how incredibly difficult it was to decarbonize um, with any set of technologies. but also if you excluded nuclear, it was much more difficult. And it just got me thinking that you know all of my courses we were really focused on wind and solar um, and no one was really talking about nuclear and um, just that just kind of got me started. I ended up um, uh, creating and co-teaching a graduate seminar on nuclear in my last semester at Colorado and it was really about ask just asking a lot of questions. You know, I didn't come into <laughs> nuclear thinking it was a silver bullet, but that it had a lot of tricky problems, but also um, was really important and um, could be really critical to deep decarbonization efforts around the world. And um, so out of out of that, I went to go work at the Breakthrough Institute and really ramped up their work on nuclear as one tool um, to decarbonize uh, the global energy system, and it's just kept me since then. I think it, you know, it's not without its problems, but um, I think there's a lot of promise and opportunity there, and that it is still really important. Um, so mm-hmm. that's how I got here.
1: <laughs> okay, and so you are now uh, a member of the Good Energy Collective. Can you tell me a little bit about that group and what they stand for?
0: Yeah. So um, similar in that. Uh, we saw a need for this organization and um, what the specific need was, was myself and a, a couple other um, women working in, in different organizations and different think tanks um, saw that there was this growing movement around um, fighting climate change. Uh, and it was particularly coming from the progressive left in um in the U.S., in the House, um, and a lot of new organizations, younger um, groups focused on fighting climate change. And they at least seemed a little more maybe open to nuclear. Um, We didn't know, but they were getting a lot of um, traction in politics. So in particular, you know, we're following the 2020 Democratic primary and um, seeing a, a very sort of moderate um, candidate, Joe Biden, um, started out pretty, I don't know, uh, vanilla on climate change mm-hmm. and then through pressure from some of these groups like Sunrise Movement um And a bunch of others uh, ended up committing to this really aggressive target on decarbonization, you know, 100 percent clean electricity by 2035. That's just really ambitious. Um, And that was built into, you know, these executive orders that he passed on his first day in office like that's maintained um, from the Biden campaign to the Biden administration and Um, So there's been this all this movement on much more um, ambitious targets on climate change, um, but not so much talking about nuclear. Um, And whereas nuclear, you know, in the past five years, it's had really good bipartisan support in um, in Congress uh, and. So it seemed like a natural fit um, when you're starting to have these these more ambitious targets. So we were kind of looking at the confluence of those two events. And then the other big thing was that there's been um, a focus in the Biden-Harris administration on environmental justice. And that's something where nuclear does not have a good record. Um, but there's also a lot of opportunities around... Um, increasing access to nuclear for new kinds of communities or um, for different customers. And so we wanted to explore, um, you know, how could we actually address some of the justice issues from nuclear's past and also align nuclear with environmental justice objectives going forward and sort of get the nuclear industry to operate in a more just and equitable way for future projects. Because there are all these companies um, working on advanced nuclear and, you know, we're really excited about those and we want to make sure that they're successful uh, because that's going to be critical for um, mitigating emissions. Um, And to be successful, they really need to start taking these justice issues seriously. And so we wanted to create a new organization to help them do that, to help figure out how to deploy nuclear in environmentally just ways. Um, And so that's why we started Good Energy Collective.
1: This is certainly not a, not a subject that everyone is thinking about in the nuclear industry. Uh, and you highlight that in uh, your essay with Suzanne Baker, Can Nuclear Power Go Local? And in it, you suggest that the nuclear industry needs to significantly change its modus operandi, embracing not just new technolo- technological pathways, but also a more democratic, inclusive approach to how it does business. What is the industry doing wrong?
0: Yeah, I think right now it's more about we—they don't have a good model um, for how to do things right, and so we haven't, you know, built new nuclear power plants in thirty-plus years. There are these um, two reactors under construction in Georgia. They haven't been going great, um, but they probably will come online, and um, and that'll be good. But for for new nuclear, um, for new nuclear, for advanced nuclear, um, for small modular reactors, it's going to look very. The technology is going to look very different, and um, particularly because of the size and potential factory fabrication, modular fabrication. Um, so it opens up new deployment models as well. But um, what needs to be different is is the business model. And in particular, uh, most of the nuclear power that we have today was built, you know, 50 or so years ago or more. And the whole market was very different. So you have these big vertically integrated utilities. Um, they would decide where they were going to build a nuclear power plant um, in this process called, um, or came to be known as um decide and announce or decide, announce, defend um, when there was opposition to these projects. And there really wasn't a lot of community engagement around where projects would be cited. It was really up to the utility thinking, okay, where do we have land? Where do we have access to water? Where do we need the electricity? Um, That's where we're gonna cite these plants. And these plants are huge. They're over a gigawatt, um, usually multiple reactors at one site. And so that's just a huge construction project. Such A project like that it would be very difficult to do today. Um, even where you still have uh, vertically integrated utilities, like in a lot of the Southeast, it's still hard to find the places to put them, to site them. So... What we're seeing, or what we we think is needed, is for um, new nuclear is um, a very different process that looks that starts by looking for communities that want to host a nuclear power plant, mm-hmm. uh, and so that is more um, feasible when you have much smaller units, um, much smaller power plants. You can have um, much more diverse range of communities that might be interested, um, and so you know part of Um, The great work that's being done at um, the Fastest Path to Zero Initiative at the University of Michigan is developing tools um, to help both developers look for where would be good communities um, that might be amenable to nuclear, and then also for communities to look at what are some of their, um, you know, constraints on deploying nuclear. Do they have flooding hazards? Do they have earthquake hazards? Um, And seeing if that might be, if nuclear might be a good fit for them. Um, because what we we really wanted to come the demand to come from communities, um, because that will be much more sustainable going forward if there's really good community support. Yes. Yes. And so what we're trying to do is is get um, the nuclear developers to start thinking about their community engagement just much earlier. Um, so rather than pick a site and say, OK, now we need to go in and convince this community that uh, to accept Uh, the plan. Instead, they want to try to find, um, you know, many communities that might be interested, might even self-select and say, let's work together to make a plan for a project that everyone's really happy with, you know, that has um, good jobs, that supports the local economy, um, where people are really understand and are comfortable with the risks um, and uh, just have sort of Full community support.
1: Yeah, I think this <clears throat> this sort of thing would have um, a good um, potentially receptive audience when we're looking at transitioning from uh, fossil fuel, large fossil fuel plants like coal communities, and and these sorts of things might be ideal receptors if you know they're forced to look at the issue that coal is on the way out. <laughs> How do we do this just transition and keep? The jobs in the community, uh, you know, if your community is, is used to developing power and you have turbines and you have the electrical infrastructure, it seems like an ideal fit. And I know uh, Bill Gates is doing is building his his SMR in a, in Wyoming in a, in a coal plant, right? Yep. Is that is sort of the the model that you're hoping to take root?
0: Yeah, definitely. That's one of the kind of groups of communities that might be um very amenable. And we actually good energy collective just had a report come out um, a few days ago on coal repowering. Um, and um, just to kind of summarize why this is an interesting area is um, so coal power plant sites, we have a ton of coal power plants that have retired in the last 10 years or will retire um, in the next 10 years. And while it's really good for emissions um and for pollution, it's devastating for the communities that surround them because they're losing this huge source of jobs and tax revenue that supports, you know, um, civil society and local school system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, there's lots of government programs to help these communities diversify their economy, sort of job retraining. Um But there's also a good opportunity um, to reuse these sites. Uh, So what we're looking at is could you build a small modular reactor that goes on the retiring coal power plant site?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, And why that's beneficial for several reasons. One is you just have a brownfield site that's already used for something industrial, electricity production, and um, there's existing infrastructure that you might be able to take advantage of, like transmission lines, um, cooling water, um, rail lines or, or road system that can, you know, take big, heavy deliveries. Um, but something that's really valuable that these sites have um, if they are about recently retired or about to retire is they have this workforce <laughs> that is Um, really well trained to do a lot of the jobs that are going to be needed at nuclear power plants. Uh, For a lot of these jobs, it's very similar between a coal power plant and a nuclear power plant. Um, And so rather than have to go through, you know, really elaborate worker retraining for these coal power plant workers, um, it's kind of less than, and more minimal retraining involved to um, get them in the appropriate place for working at a nuclear power plant. So um we think, you know, it's not going to be for everyone, but uh, there are certainly coal communities that could be very interested in this option. Um, it also keeps the jobs local rather than sort of mm-hmm. promises around, you know, increased um, jobs from renewable energy in the area. Um, it's the exact same site. So um, that's what we've been looking at. And our report specifically looks at um, identifying Coal plants that might be good fit for SMRs based on um, state regulations, size, um, environmental risks, uh, and things like that. Um, and also look at the amount of, of job retraining required um, and some of the other constraints and, and opportunities there.
1: So you're definitely uh, going all in on this, um, on the SMR uh, future. Um, And you mentioned earlier that you think that it's unlikely that any of these large power plants are going to be started again. Obviously, we haven't started one in North America in in decades, Uh, so politically it's been blocked. Um, There is uncertainty in uh, because no one has, has made commercial SMRs on how economical they're going to be and what the timeline will be you know are they going to solve some of the problems there's a lot of hope out there that they're going to solve some of these issues and obviously the the size and the decentralized the potential for a decentralized power fits well with the environmental justice mindset of the left that is pushing for the transition so politically it works well technically it hasn't Yet panned out. What do you how do you see this as I mean, is is this your your goal to push for these and just hope?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No. So I think uh, it's a couple of things. So one, I wouldn't rule out large nuclear everywhere, I think there's definitely places where large nuclear um, could still make a lot of sense. So particularly in places that are um, still have a lot of growth in their demand for electricity. Um, You know, industrializing countries, countries that still have pretty rapid economic growth. Um, You know, we're seeing a lot of plants under construction in China. Um, South Korea is looking to export large reactors. Uh, You know, there's four huge reactors under construction, UAE, that are coming online. Um, So there's definitely still a market for the large nuclear. But in places that have deregulated there electricity markets like the U.S., like a large portion of Europe. Um, it's just really hard to build big things. <laughs> it's not unique to nuclear. Um, you know, large renewables projects face similar challenges. Uh, and so looking more towards power plants that look like a commercial product um, that you can order, have delivered, you um, More in a sort of bite size additionality to your grid rather than these huge, um, huge baseload power plants Uh, just makes more business sense for where utilities are uh, in um, wealthier countries that have had kind of stagnating demand for electricity um, and deregulated power systems. Um, small modular reactors just make more sense. Um, and there's also just even things that aren't small modular reactors, but most advanced nuclear that we're seeing in development, it just tends to be smaller, um, whether it's 100 megawatts or, or more like six 600 megawatts, that's still smaller than the plants we were building um, and are building in, in places like China and South Korea. So it uh, doesn't necessarily um, have to be super tiny, but definitely smaller. Um, And then the modular or factory fabricated aspect is also very different, but just, you know, we assume that's where things need to go. I mean, that's what's happening with natural gas plants, our built modular um, combined cycle gas turbines, um, wind, solar, that's how prices have come down so much is from factory fabrication. Um, And we've never really done nuclear that way, but it's not, it wouldn't be, (laughs) um, uh, surprising um, that it needs to be built that way uh, for costs to come down. And so there are a lot of critiques around nuclear costs that, um, you know, it's just always gotten more expensive, um, that historically costs have, have grown instead of so declined with more unit builds. Um, and, you know, it's a really basic question of like, why haven't costs come down for nuclear and the kind of um, glib answer, but it's true, is that we've never really asked them to. <laughs> um, the way we've built nuclear, you wouldn't expect costs to come down. We've built them like huge infrastructure projects, which you've seen, um, you know, in the U.S. and in Europe. Um, costs for infrastructure projects just keep going up. Doesn't matter what it is. Um, it's just hard to build complex projects when you have more concerns around, you know, environmental impacts and you... Um, need to be sort of in line with all sorts of regulations it's just much harder to do that so moving towards smaller moving towards factory fabrication um is just inevitable i think
1: do you have a, a particular technology of smr that you favor and in, in, in the the fight over all these different types that are being built
0: <laughs> no um i i try to stay neutral on that i think um what what matters and what people should be following is who is moving forward um, in, in their first build. So who's going through licensing and there's um, I think six or seven vendors that are working with the regulator in the US, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, to uh, begin the licensing process. There's um, some that have already submitted different um, types of licenses. So for example, Oaklo is the first non-light water reactor that submitted a combined operating license. Um, We did that in 2020. Um, And so, you know, you could make a case there, they're farther ahead, Um, but there are several companies that are working through licensing. So it's really, this is kind of a critical next few years of looking at who's gonna start construction, who's gonna get their license um, and who's gonna demonstrate first. And I think that's how we should them. There are a lot of companies out there. There's um, over 70 in North America working on different, a big diverse range of advanced nuclear designs. So um, I wouldn't pick a winner yet, um, and there will definitely be room for several different designs and um, for different market needs. You know, Oklo, which I mentioned, is very small. It's 1.5 megawatts.
1: Um, micro. So that's
0: not going to be replacing, yeah, micro. Uh, it's not going to be replacing whole plants, but it could be a great option for off-grid communities. Indeed. Um, islands, you know, diesel-dependent communities. Um, and so different, different designs for different markets. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. I think the biggest concern for a lot of us uh, who are watching this play out and who are, you know, who believe that nuclear has a significant role to play in decarbonizing the economy. Um, Communication is key. How do we sway public opinion from anti-nuclear to pro-nuclear? And, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about the most, because you, you brought up some good points in your, in your paper. You, you point out that nuclear advocates tend to characterize their opposition as being ideologically motivated uh, and misunderstanding the science I'm guilty. I, I do that too. Um, but you go on to suggest that communication strategies aren't the way to change minds. It's it's the market strategy that's more important to, to go away from this, this big central centralized clean energy monolith to a more distributed community-based power source. So obviously that fits with what you're what you're talking about here, um, what are the things do we need to be doing as advocates for this uh, to help it move forward?
0: yeah, so I think the the point that we're trying to make is that there's been a ton of communication efforts around nuclear to change public perception, and really the the challenge is that um, the industry just needs to be different <laughs> for people to perceive it differently and so that's much harder, but that's why we're focused on um, you know these these first demonstrations and making sure they're really successful and not just you know commercially successful, but that they have um, really good support from their host communities, um, and that that is critical for success of the project, but also for the future of the nuclear industry. So, uh, what's needed most. I think, to change public perception is for there to be successful projects that people can go and look at, that they can you know, talk to people in these communities um, about what it's like to live next to them and um, how the engagement process was, um, to see that it is a fair and just process that the community went through. And I think that's what's, what's needed to change public perception, because right now, um, you know, it's it's not necessarily, you know, fair a lot of the times but nuclear um, definitely gets grouped in people's minds with fossil fuels. Um, you see these polls about, um, you know, what people think about um, different energy sources and a very significant share of people think that nuclear makes greenhouse gas emissions when it's operating. Um, and that's not, you know. Necessarily, like they didn't, they don't understand the science of nuclear. They just have nuclear grouped in this category of fossil fuels. And a lot of that has to do with um, the business model. So, nuclear power plants are owned by big utilities, just like fossil fuel power plants. Uh, and utilities, you know, there's a huge variety of utilities in the US, but a lot of them have done, uh, you know, shady things and corrupt practices. And, um, you know, projects have gone over budget. So there's a lot of good reasons for people to be skeptical of that model. Um, You know, there's also, of course, great utilities (laughs) that have been doing wonderful work and bringing emissions down and building clean energy. Um, But that's the sort of success that people need to see to have faith in these institutions and um, to change their perception around nuclear is to you know, kick the tires and see how the technology is working. We see in polling that communities that live near nuclear power plants are actually really supportive of the technology, um, which is different than for fossil fuel power plants. Um, and so unfortunately, <laughs> nuclear power plants have a very small footprint. So there's not very many communities that live near an existing nuclear power plant. But um, if we're moving towards having more um, demonstrations, particularly of new advanced nuclear technologies, then getting the process right is just super important because there's no time to make mistakes on this.
1: So, I mean, time is, is definitely of the essence in mitigating climate change. And that's one of the biggest um, impediments that anti-nuclear people will throw up there is that it takes too long. You know, you, we don't have an SMR. We're not going to have one this decade. Uh, and I've spoken to Canon uh, Bryan of Terrestrial Energy and he's saying basically, you know, the regulations and the Alara principle really slow down the process to slog through all of this red tape. It's not really um, in the best interest of the public if we know people are being killed by fossil fuels, by by the thousands, by the millions. You know, it it seems like it's a no brainer but we have this regu- all these regulations. Is there anything that can be done? I mean, is this will public opinion help to accelerate this if we can sway it in favor of nuclear energy? Or do I mean, we have to wait for the first one to happen?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah, it's a chicken and egg problem, but I think there is a lot that's changing on the regulatory side. Um, and it's not, I don't think you're ever going to, When, if you're saying we just need to make the regulations much more lax, (laughs) um, that doesn't feel good to people that are anti-nuclear and that's not what's needed. Um, But there is uh, a lot of room for reform of regulations to make them more risk informed um, and more appropriate for new technologies uh, and there's been great legislation to reform the regulatory process, and the NRC in the US is um, is doing a lot of this work to design new regulations for advanced nuclear. So this is this is underway, um, and it could definitely help. It you know it is a big hurdle for new nuclear developers, and it's also a big financial hurdle right now. They um, nuclear developers pay for their licensing, and it's quite expensive. Um, so there's more room to, to help on that end, you know, cost sharing with the government, some of that, that regulatory cost. Um, but I think, you know, <laughs> um, some of these things you, you need those regulations. I mean, you want proper environmental impact statements done because you need those in place for people to really feel comfortable um, and for these communities to feel comfortable. I think if those sorts of things are, are skipped or rushed, then that, adds to this perception that um nuclear is sort of doing things uh you know under the table or cutting corners yeah um and that leads to accidents that leads to um you know contamination so um i think the timeline just is going to be a little bit longer we have seen um you know legislation and support of policies that are accelerating that timeline we can definitely have more of that um But uh, we just need to, you know, get these projects built. And then I think once there's um, successful projects, then you'll see a a deeper order book of more places that um, want the technology and that'll help um, companies invest in fabrication facilities. So they'll scale up how many units they can build every year. Um, And that that will come naturally, especially as more, um, states and countries are co- actually um, committing to reducing emissions in meaningful ways. Um, that'll also help with the demand pull mm-hmm. of these technologies. Mm-hmm.
1: The um, you've mentioned in, in your paper uh, politically divisive approaches to waste management and disposal as a problem for the industry. Could you elaborate a little bit on what that is? I mean you you brought up you've brought up Yucca Mountain in the past, I think. Uh, and how that was kind of pushed through politically rather than based on the science. Um, where do you see that going?
0: Yeah. <laughs> so I think this, this kind of comes um, back to the siting challenges I mentioned for power plants in this um, decide and announce. But definitely the case with Yucca Mountain. Um, you know, that site was chosen um, because there wasn't much political opposition at the time because Nevada and the senators from Nevada were not that powerful, um, which is a, uh, you know, back in the day was a faster way to get things pushed through, but definitely not um, a just an equitable process, as we would understand it today. Um, now, that might make it sound like, well, it's just impossible to build a waste repository or, you know, where can you put this nuclear waste? Because nobody wants it. But that actually isn't what we've seen. So there are much better models for citing things um, that seem undesirable, like nuclear waste. So, you know, there's um, everyone cites uh, Sweden and Finland and they are. Um, uh, consent-based process for citing um, their waste repositories. Um, that's something that the Blue Ribbon Commission um, that looked at nuclear waste in the U.S. in, in 2010 um, also recommended and Department of Energy started kind of informing um, uh, and listening to communities around starting a consent-based process. Um, there just needs to be, <laughs> just as if it's simple, um, there needs to be political leadership to get this process going again. Um, And we could definitely see that from the current administration if there weren't um, many other problems that they're focused Mm -hmm. on. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, it would need to come from um, uh, some sort of leadership politically to say, okay, we're going to restart the process of citing a nuclear waste repository and we're gonna do it in a consent-based way Um, We're going to find communities that are interested in hosting it and, um, you know, work with them to do the environmental impact statements, to understand what their needs are. um, And, you know, pick a few sites from that, from communities that are that want them and then and then move forward there. And it's probably not going to be a single site. Um, And it's probably not going to be a site designed to last for millions of years um, because that's a very hard sell for communities. But, um, you know, a system of regional interim facilities um, is a good start. And right now, spent nuclear fuel is stored at, you know, 60 plus sites around the country. Um, It's perfectly safe where it is right now, but it is a liability that these utilities did not sign up for. Um, They were not planning to be storing the spent fuel um, for an indefinite amount of time. Department of Energy was supposed to take ownership of it over two decades ago. And so um, it's, yeah, (laughs) it's a quagmire, but it's not uh, an impossible problem to overcome. There's definitely models. Um, from nuclear, from other industries about how you'd site a facility like this. And there's also, um, you know, on the more innovation side, um, there are different technologies of how to process nuclear waste to make it easier to store, to make it um, safer to store for really long term, um, and also a lots of different ways to recycle it and reuse waste to get more of the energy out. Um, that's a whole can of worms <laughs> we could open if you want, but... Um, there's definitely room for more R&D, more innovation in um, different ways to use nuclear waste and different ways to um, store it and, and dispose of it.
1: Yeah, I, I think that uh, many of the knowledgeable advocates of, of nuclear technologies would be all for recycling the uh, spent fuel in the next generation of fast breeder reactors and, you know, using the remaining 95% of the uranium that's sitting there uh, unused. Um, But politically, this is, you know, one of the, the big three um, anti-nuclear talking points. What about the waste? You know, it needs to be stored indefinitely and, and the existence of a functioning deep geological repository that's gonna store it for a million years. Gets that off the table. So it's a, it's um, something that it would be nice to have from a political standpoint in in getting rid of that argument because you know, obviously then everyone can rest easy and that nagging doubt is gone.
0: Yeah, um, I definitely agree. <laughs> yeah, the, the
1: the whip plant in the U.S. I, I spoke to Dr. Jim Conka in a previous. Uh, podcast. And he's was, you know, he's very knowledgeable at Yucca Mountain and, and the whip uh, plant, which is for military waste right now. And he says, you know, the whip is an ideal formation. It's, it's this deeply bedded Permian salt, which, you know, is 2000 feet thick and a hundred thousand square miles of this stuff, which self seals. And, you know, it's just, an ideal geological formation if we could use that, you know, there's plenty of space there for all the nuclear waste in the world, if we wanted to put it there. Uh, But the politics, right, it's licensed for military and I don't, I don't see a great way forward.
0: A case could be made if the community wants to take more waste, that's something that could be pursued, but if they didn't sign up for it, if they were interested or, you know, it was designed for military waste, um, it could be a tough sell, but. Um, yeah, it's something, it's an argument that I hear from, from more, um, sort of technocratic nuclear advocates that, well, nuclear waste isn't really a problem because it's so small. There's not that much of it. You know, it's very safe where it is. Um, but it is a big problem, um, for the perception of nuclear that we have, um, you know, this waste that's just sitting around and there's no plan for what to do with it. And also, Several states in the US have prohibitions on nuclear power, on new nuclear power, until the waste problem is solved or at least a solution starts moving. So it's a political obstacle and it's also a, a huge public perception obstacle. It's the first question I get asked all the time um, when I speak to more general audiences about nuclear power. So, um, you know, it's not a technical challenge. <laughs> we know. There's many different things we could do with it and and store it safely, but um, definitely uh, need some political uh, willpower to get that moving.
1: The terminology surrounding power uh, is is slanted. We have renewables as a category, but no power is renewable, right? We we don't magically get solar power and wind power. We have to build things. We have to mine. Metals and plastics, and build huge structures to get any sort of uh, integrated power out of these low-density sources. It's not a, a re- sort, certain aspects of it are renewable. The the source of the power is renewable, but the capturing technology is not renewable at all. And I, I find that as a you know a barrier that we have to surmount in our in our public uh, discussions of this. Is that, you know, nuclear is as renewable as solar and wind, in, in my opinion, anyways, and I can make a good case for the fact that, you know, we have enough uranium to last us for the, the future of human civilization if we treat it properly. Um, what do you, how do you see that uh, argument?
0: Yeah, I think this is, this is a um, a challenge and it's something, you know, advocates grapple with as well. So. Um, you know, it's important to note that every energy source has um, environmental impacts, has trade-offs. tradeoffs. Um, but I I don't like when um, when people go so far, particularly when renewable, when nuclear advocates go and say, well, there's all this mining that's needed for renewables. So renewables are bad. It's more about recognizing the impacts and and creating standards and, and regulations that um, that manage and mitigate the impacts from every energy source. So, um, you know, we need a lot more work on critical minerals for renewables. Um, but it would help to have, you know, better, um, tracking, better transparency on where minerals are sourced for everything, for uranium, um, for rare earth elements used in batteries. Um, I was just listening to, um, a story about cobalt and the DRC used for electric vehicles. And so, um, it's not, I I want people to move away from, well, this is renewable, so it's good, or, well, this is, um, you know, uses mining, so it's bad, um, to say, okay, what are the life cycle impacts, and how can we compare them fairly, how can we minimize them for every technology, because we are definitely going to need renewables, and we're going to need a lot more of them, Um, so we can't just sort of Uh, throw the baby out with the bathwater, we need um, to make sure they're also have sustainable practices for their life cycle um, and minimizing, you know, the emissions of their manufacturing as well. Um, And of course, there's a, you know, very terrible legacy of uranium mining in a lot of places as well. So uh, you're going to point out mining impacts. I think the goal should be, um, you know, we want to make sure that we are sourcing materials, um, whether it's uranium, whether it's rare earth elements in the best, um, most sustainable way um, and in just and equitable ways um, for the community surrounding these mining, wherever they might be in the world. So I think, uh, yeah, moving away of, uh, I don't know what, what the word is, but just being, being critical of, of easy categorization of technologies. Um, and focus more on on outcomes um, and understanding the the life cycle impacts of everything.
1: Yeah, you need to to step back and look at the big picture. Look at the ecological footprint of your of your energy sources in a in an equitable way and on a level playing field. I think that's that's the piece that's missing in in the technical the public's technical picture. One of the pieces that's missing in the public's technical picture of nuclear is that it's not unique in any of these categories in terms of having a waste stream or having hazardous waste or, or using mining. But, I mean, that, that's that's the, the point that I'm trying to make. Um, you bring up in your paper the white male effect, the significant gender and racial gap in support for nuclear. Uh, surveys suggest that this is due to white males' having a larger appetite for risk than other populations. What do you believe is behind this divide? Um, I
0: mean, there's a couple different um, explanations and I don't have a conclusion on what's driving it. So there's one um, that's around worldview. So um, particular, certain worldviews, um, whether it's more communitarian or more individualistic, um, more hierarchical or more egalitarian, those are kind of the two spectra. Have different evaluations of risk um, and different acceptance of risk for technologies. So, um, what looks like a big a big gap in risk perception for different technologies, like nuclear, but also things like vaccines, um, pollution, uh, even things like drunk driving. Uh, really can come down to differences in worldview, Um, whether you're more communitarian or or individualistic um, in your worldview can explain a lot of that gap. And so uh, what looks like a white male effect, so that white males have uh, rate risks much lower than other groups can actually come down to, well, they tend to be more um, individualistic and more hierarchical. Um, So that's one explanation or one hypothesis. Um, Another is vulnerability. So historically, um, women and people of color have been more vulnerable to risks, whether they're economic risks or environmental risks. Um, They have less means to adapt to risks. And so If you present a new technology and say, well, you know, the scientists say it's really safe or the government says it's really safe, Uh, vulnerable communities are gonna take a step back and say, well, you told us that in the past and it's been really hard for us. You know, we are more impacted by um, natural disasters or, you know, economic collapse. And so we don't wanna take that risk. Whereas people with more privilege, with more wealth, more means say, ah, you know, when there was a wildfire, my insurance covered it, I moved, it's not as big of a deal for me. Um, so that's a different explanation. But um, where it's come sort of to head in nuclear is that um, the industry has been very dominated by um, men and particularly by um, white men historically, and that has shaped Um, how the risk is communicated um, and how um, the risks are perceived by um, non-experts. And so that is a challenge to overcome as well. I don't think, um, and a point we're trying to make is you can't just change the communicators. You can't just um, find, uh, you know, women or people of color to talk about how great nuclear is. Um, That doesn't, really address the underlying condition. And it is difficult if the underlying issue is economic vulnerability um, to change risk perception. And so that is where we're focusing on um, different community engagement models because um, if a community is interested in a new clean energy project and is really involved and engaged in the process of deciding um how a power plant is going to be in their community, how it's going to operate, and they feel like they have good control um, and good sort of ownership over that project. I mean that does actually change how um, how they view the technology and how they view the risks. Um, if you have power, you are less vulnerable to potential risks. And so that is something that can actually change that mm. that deeper issue driving risk
1: perception. Mm. Yeah, it's it's definitely a good approach. And I know um, Canada is using that sort of community approach to citing its deep geological repository as well. Uh, and they're yeah. asking for, you know, they've asked for communities that were willing to consider supporting it. And now they're going through a process of uh, doing uh, environmental and geological surveys in these communities but the 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 white male effect, you know, I, I come up against this in advocacy all the time. It's weaponized now as an epithet against nuclear supporters. We're all nuke bros now. <clears throat>
0: <laughs> well, just, yeah, not everyone is, in, not every male is a nuclear bro. Um, <laughs> it's a very specific type of nuclear advocate. And there are many wonderful um, nuclear communicators and nuclear advocates that are male um, and I don't want to, uh, you know, dismiss them. It's a, it's a very specific advocate and, uh, they probably know who they are, but, um, definitely we can all improve, uh, is an, is also an example. I have a lot to learn. I've learned a lot, but still a long way to go. Um, and so I think everyone, you know, can always improve.
1: You know, you make a very good point in that we shouldn't be, um, fighting against regulations. We should be, uh, advocating for a balanced approach and a big picture view on, on the impacts of technologies, all technologies. And not one thing that I find is that a lot of people just focus on the negatives of nuclear. And if you look <clears throat> and that sort of focus on one technology, you're going to find warts. All of the technologies have warts. If you look close enough and it's a question of making sure that you're not uh, over focusing on one, and that you have a balanced view of all of them, and the impacts uh, of fossil fuels are very obvious. The negative impacts of these, and it's very easy to contrast them. So that that's what I try to go back to, and that whenever I'm a, you know approached by an anti-nuclear uh, advocate is is to you know let's let's step back. We're accepting fossil fuels that spew more radiation into the environment than all of the nuclear combined. You know, we need to make sure that we're attacking the right uh, windmill here. (laughs) Excuse me.
0: (laughs) And I think also, you know, I think there this has changed and is changing, but there just needs to be more humility in the nuclear industry of recognizing the faults in nuclear. I think there's sometimes this knee jerk reaction of like, well, waste isn't a problem. Peripheration's not a problem. You know, mining's not a problem. Um, but recognizing the, the historical harms um, that the industry has caused, um, you know, you can still think that technology has a lot of promise, is really important for reducing emissions, for reducing air and water pollution, while also recognizing the injustices of the past um, and working to address them. Um, and the other side of that is also, um, you know, Advocates need to be more enthusiastic about other clean energy technologies. So think of nuclear as one tool in the tool belt, um, also advocating for um, renewables policies for um, nuclear and renewables working together. You An know, example I like to bring up is um, New Scale. The small modular reactor company has, has published some, some research and some white p- papers showing that their reactor can be a good complement to wind energy in the Pacific Northwest, and they do some modeling around that. Um, I think that's a much better approach to show, like you know, we're all in this together. Um, every you know, every tool is needed, and they have different use cases and and different um, markets. And also, we need to work together to minimize um, the negatives across every energy technology.
1: Yeah, if if you look at the pathways to net zero, we need to was it roughly triple our electrical our clean electrical capacity uh, to get you know to eighty percent. I think is 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 what uh, IPCC uh, is saying, and yeah, we need every tool in the box to get there, and we need to be wildly optimistic about how how quickly we're going to roll all this stuff out. So yeah, it's a very good point. So what what's next for you? What are you working on, uh, these days, uh, at the good energy?
0: Yeah. So there's, um, you know, it's hard to believe, uh, 2021 was a very long year, <laughs>
1: um, but there's still
0: a, of, still a lot of work in, um, in, in the U S at least in, um, legislation to support and accelerate, um, demonstration of advanced nuclear, um, more work on, um, testing facilities and fuel supply for advanced reactors. And then internationally, um, something that good energy is going to be getting started on is looking at, um, nuclear diplomacy. So how to work with other countries that are interested in starting commercial nuclear power programs, um, in sort of new ways of doing that. That's, that's more equitable for, for both partners and, um, Kind of helps countries that want nuclear um, get it sooner, but in a way that's, um, you know, safe and um, economic and also meets their needs and their values. So uh, sort of looking at new ways of exporting nuclear technology um, that align with kind of global climate change agenda and um, uh, this climate diplomacy, which is something that's come out of uh, the Biden administration in the
1: last year as well. Excellent. Well, I uh, I wish you all the best of luck in those endeavors. Um before I let you go, I got a couple questions. I I, I asked this question of some of my uh, uh some of my interviewees, what what science fiction do you like? What's your favorite uh Ooh. science fiction?
0: Um oh, okay, there's so many. Um I would say just my my initial gut reaction when you ask that is Um, I love, um, anything by Kim Stanley Robinson. And I know Ah. his climate work has gotten a lot of focus, but, um, I was, I'm a long time, um, fan of his Mars trilogy. Um, and that's some of my favorites. So if you, if your listeners have not read Red Mars, that's a great place to start. Even people I know who never read sci-fi, don't like sci-fi, um, enjoyed Red Mars. Um, and you know, something I read in 2021 that I liked, um, was Good Morning Midnight. Um, I won't explain it, but, uh, it was a, it, w- it was also a movie that came out last year. Um, but the book is very good. Um, and, oh, I will say, um, something I read that, that you wouldn't think has an energy component, but does end up having a little energy subplot is The Passage, um, which is a kind of zombie post-apocalyptic book. But there is a is a renewable energy um, component in it that uh. I found really um, <laughs> delightful. Um, and it's also just a, a, a beautiful story and um, wonderful book. So yes
1: <laughs> wow okay thank you I'll, I'll, I'll have to try to look those up uh, thank you so much for coming on the Rational View I'm going to send you a Rational View t-shirt for coming on the show oh thank uh, you <laughs> So you can, you can uh, sport it and show it off to your friends at the Good Energy Collective uh, if you ever get to go and see them in person again
0: <laughs> That's and if this
1: horrible mess ever gets out of the way <laughs> thank yeah. you so much
0: well thank you for having me it's been a great discussion